0: I have a few slides that will come up on the, on the screen here, not a whole lot, um, but Paul said we give thanks, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers constantly, being, bearing in mind your work of faith, your work of faith, and your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope, hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of God Of our God and Father. And then he goes on to say a little later, you became an example to all the believers. And then he says, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. I believe that that can be said of the agape house of worship. I really do. So again, congratulations, church. An anniversary is a good time to look back and to praise the Lord and to celebrate his favor on you and your leaders. And I'm privileged to do that with you today, to look back, but also to look forward. Pastor Lawari has already told you about how the Lord brought us together in ministry, in the Spirit, in Uganda. And here we are today in the U.S., deepening that relationship. And I'll tell you, this has just been a wonderful experience. Isn't church boring? (laughs) <laughs> I, I can't get over that. People think, I don't go to church, it's so boring. Well, they need to come here, for, for sure. I mean, this is, this is church on steroids or church <laughs> on adrenaline or something, but it's fantastic. So, you know, you would not be excelling as you are if you were not the kind of people who are easily content. So I want today to encourage you as you excel still more, a phrase that is used in First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 and 10 twice. Excel still more. That's where we want to go. And you will excel still more because this is a year of outpouring. So let's talk about from 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. And I want to make a confession here: don't be afraid. But buckle your seat belt here because uh, I'm going to preach from two whole chapters. I've never done that before. But just taking little pieces from chapters 4 and 5 of 1 Thessalonians. So what Paul talks to these, this, is an infant church. It was an adolescent church, somewhat like agape. You're an adolescent church. And I'm going to say more about that a little bit later. But he mentions six important areas that he wants the people to excel still more. And I think they apply here to Agape. He wants you to excel still more in your family relations and in personal holiness. Verses 1 to 8 of chapter 4. He wants you to excel still more in your love for other Christians. He wants you to excel still more in caring pastorally for one another. He wants you to excel still more in spiritual warfare. And he wants you to excel still more in responding properly to your leaders. And he wants you to excel still more in day-by-day Christian maturity. So that's what we're going to talk about. In order to be the kind of church that Paul commended the Thessalonians for being, the individual members of the church, need to excel still more in these areas. So first he talks about excel still more in family relationships and personal holiness. For the Apostle Paul, the testimony of the church was directly related to the testimony of the individual members. In fact, you see in the church at Corinth that one individual member brought shame to the church at Corinth because he was not conducting himself In the ways of Christ. Sometimes people ask the question. Every pastor gets asked this question. Pastor, how can I know the will of God? Now they usually have something really specific in mind. That they want to know the will of God. But I usually start by saying. Well, 99% of the will of God is found in the Bible. When you are sure you're learning and knowing and obeying all that. Then maybe he'll reveal the other 1% to you. But specifically, one place in the Bible. The will of God is very clear about is here in 1 Thessalonians 4 where he says very clearly that your sanctification is the will of God. Your sanctification. It is God's will, not just for you to be saved from your sin, from the penalty of sin, so that you have the fire escape and you go to heaven when you die. That's just the beginning point. Jesus didn't come just to save you. If he did and you were saved, he'd rapture you immediately. But he came for more than that. He came to make you holy. He came for your sanctification as well. And Paul is saying that here. That's part of his purpose for you. And specifically, he's referring to sanctification in our sexuality and in our marriage. Verse 4 says, talks about, the, uses the word vessel or, or body in most translations. Or, in, or possibly even the word could mean your wife. We're, to treat her with honor. To To treat your body with honor. Sanctification can be a very personal experience, but it's much more a family issue as well. Though most uh, likely never married, the Apostle Paul knew the importance of marriage for most people for maintaining sexual purity. But far beyond that, marriage is a relationship that God uses to show how Christ and the church are to relate to each other. You know that from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33, where he talks about marriage is an analogy of the relationship between Christ and the church. Now, if you want Christ and the church, Christ and agape house of worship, to have the kind of fidelity that they should have, the kind of faithfulness, the kind of intimacy that we worship God for, if you want this church to have the kind of Special relationship with Jesus Christ that he wants you to have, he also wants that in your marriages as well. And so it's very clear in Scripture, though our our culture today would not agree with this, it is the word of God that sexual activity outside of marriage is completely forbidden in Scripture. There's no way of obeying God's word and expressing sexuality outside of the bond of marriage. Betsy and I held a, had a home Bible study for quite a few years. We like to do motorcycling. I hope that's not considered a sin here. But we, we go out motorcycling once in a while. And we had a bikers and friends Bible study. And there are some pretty rough cut folks in that Bible study, as you can imagine. And one of them, a guy named Johnny, uh, was struggling his walk. At least I had hoped it was a walk. I'm not sure it was. I'm not sure if he ever even got to crawling. But he was living with a woman. They weren't married, and they didn't have any intention to be married for financial reasons, he told me. Well, I called him out on that in a breakfast meeting in a loving sort of a way, and, and uh, he seemed to accept it. But later on, I found out that he told somebody else, well, you know what's wrong with David Schroeder? He's using an old translation of the Bible. Yeah, find a translation of the Bible that condones sexual activity outside of marriage. There isn't one. But an excuse, an excuse. And you know, the Bible talks about the importance of of your name, agape. Agape is the basis for the kind of marital relationship God wants you to have. And it has nothing to do with romance. Sorry about that. We just had Valentine's Day. But agape is not about romance. Agape is not about feeling and emotion. Agape is about action and doing. And so that's what agape is, and that's the basis of our marriage, is just to obey and do right. When I was pastoring up in Chatham, New Jersey some years ago, one of my best friends and his wife were really struggling and, and with their marriage. And he, he came to me, and he said, I don't know what, what's wrong. He said, I, I love her. I really, I believe I really love her. And I looked at him, and I said, you know, Bob, but does she know that you cherish her? You know, love is sort of a a soupy, sentimental-ish kind of word. It's used in so many distorted ways today. Even in Greek, we've got the three words, you know, of agape and phileo and eros. But the word cherish is really what should be at the heart and soul of every marriage. Do I cherish my wife? Do I cherish my husband? That's what this is about. You know, a nation is no stronger than its churches, And a church is no stronger than its families. And a family is no stronger than its marriage. And our priority of attention should be, first, God, second, husband or wife, third, family, fourth, God's family, fifth, your job profession, and sixth, church programs. Now, church programs are important. I don't want to put that down. And I thank God for the workers. We had a wonderful time last night. But... This priority is important. God and then husband and wife. The first institution God created was the family. So how is it? How is it in your marriage? How is it in your family? Will you excel still more in 2019? What does it mean to be sanctified? It means that you should understand that you do not own yourself. You do not own yourself. If you're bought with the blood of Christ, you belong to him not only that your body is to be used as a temple of the living lord if christ is in you and you are the temple you don't want to have to have him come in like he did at the jerusalem temple and kind of every day clean it out clean it out clean it out you want to have a pure and holy temple for him to reside in your body is for him not only that as the apostle paul tells the galatians you're dead you're dead. And he tells the Romans, you're dead for the purposes of sin. But he said, I'm crucified with Christ. I'm crucified with Christ. Yet Not I, I, I but I'm alive in the, in, in the flesh, yes, but I'm alive to serve him. And that's why, you know, he's going to leave you here on planet earth as long as he wants you to be serving him. You know, because this is not our home. This is not what he created us for. We're here, you know, C.S. Lewis says, we're here as rebels against the powers of darkness. And we're here to be signs of the kingdom of God. We're here to demonstrate who he is to our friends, our neighbors, and that can happen best as we have well-ordered families. I think it's more important, I really do, that there be a Christ-centered, God-honoring, spirit-filled family in every neighborhood than maybe having a church in every neighborhood. So you are a church as a family. And understand that you have a responsibility to represent him well. So excel, excel still more. Excel still more. Excel still more in your family life, in your, your, your marriage relationship. Excel still more. Will your marriage be better and stronger when we get to this point in 2020 than it is now? We talk about 2020 vision. That ought to be part of your 2020 vision. To be stronger. To be more faithful with your sexuality if you're single. And to understand that God has you here to serve Him. A word to the older people, and I include myself in that area. If you're not dead, you're not done. Okay? If you're not dead, you're not done. And when you are dead, when you are dead, you've just begun to live where... He wants us to be and to serve him even more immediately in his presence. So excel still more. Excel still more in your love for other Christians, verses 9 and 10 of 1 Thessalonians. He talks about this. He talks about one another, ministering to one another. And there are a lot of one another's in the scriptures. I imagine pastor may have preached through that perhaps, or he, he has. Yeah, he's nodding. Yes, yeah, a lot of us have kind of hooked on to that. To to promote the idea of koinonia, of true fellowship. True fellowship is not just drinking coffee together. True fellowship is is being involved in one another's lives. Now, we're a big church here, and you can't possibly be deeply involved in every single person's life. Uh, But you can be involved in, in a small, significant group of believers. And I don't know what the strategy here is, Agape, for doing that. But, but just what I heard um, earlier, when well, you were honoring people, you, you knew who they were, you were applauding like crazy. That was just thrilling. My wife turned to me and said, this is just amazing. This is wonderful. It really is. So excel still more in your love for other Christians. And other Christians, not just in Agape, but other Christians in the area. And, and, and maybe you have a chance even to meet with... Other people, I tell, I mean, I grew up in a denomination sometimes I call it an abomination, but they don't like me to say that. But I grew up in a denomination, and so one of the things I found out is they have all their little clergy gatherings in their areas, but just of people of the denomination. So I said to the head of the denomination, I'm not sure I'm his favorite person, but I said to him, You know what, this is wrong, we ought to be fellowshipping with other like minded. Evangelical Bible believing Christ loving pastors in our area, regardless of the label that is on the front of their church, you know why? Because the world sees the church as a very fragmented organization. They they bemoan the fact that there are so you know there are some like thirty eight thousand denominations in the world. Jesus came to build my church. And I'm not totally against denominations. I understand the reasoning for that, I think. But when we get so isolated from others, then we become what's called a sect. Then we become a a section of the church. And we're to be part of the whole body. And so I encourage you, you not every believer is going to come to Agape. I hope more and more do, as you excel still more. But... We should be in fellowship with people from other churches as well because that adds to the testimony of the church. Jesus prayed in John 17, Lord, I want them to see our unity and then I want them, my followers, to be united. And we talked about this a little bit yesterday about the importance in Ephesians uh, chapter 4 of being united in the bond of peace. Why? Because Jesus said to the Father in that prayer in John 17, that way the world will know that I am Christ, that I'm the Messiah. The corporate testimony of the church is incredibly important. They can always excuse one fanatic, (laughs) as they would see it. One person who's on fire for Christ. They can always say, well, that's just that person. But when whole groups of people in their town, their area, from even different churches, all worship the same God... Honor the same Lord Jesus Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit. They can't excuse that. They can't write that off. That's the testimony of the church. So excel still more in your love for other Christians. And let me mention another category of other Christians we need to excel still more in. And you are already doing that, I know, in terms of God's worldwide body. The whole area of missions and, the, and what God is doing in, because God so loves the world. And Jesus said in Matthew 24, 14, when people wanted to know, when will the end come? He said, he didn't give them a date. He said, this gospel will be preached in the whole world. And the whole world, what did they think the whole world was then? I mean, for them, Rome was like way out there, you know. Uh, They didn't know anything about the Western Hemisphere. They didn't know anything much about the Southern Hemisphere. They knew a little bit about North Africa. But Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a witness or a testimony to all the ethne, all the nations, all the people groups. And then shall the end come. You want Jesus to come back again? You want Jesus to come back again? I hope you do, and I hope you do for the right reasons. Not just to escape, not just to prove that your eschatology is right, but because you love him. Paul said in his last letter, I fought the good fight. I finished the course. You know, I've kept the faith. Henceforth is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. And not only for me, but also for all who love his appearing. Who love his appearing. Well, he's going to come back when the job of the Great Commission gets done. I don't know if you've heard of the Back to Jerusalem movement. I'm privileged to be on the board of a group that's really taking that seriously. The idea is, you know, the gospel basically under the Holy Spirit moved, moved from the Middle East to the West when, when the Holy Spirit called through Paul to go over to Macedonia. That was to Europe, and the gospel spread to Europe, and then it, sp- and it spread throughout much of uh, northern Africa at the time, and then it came over to the, the western hemispheres, particularly to North America, And even to South America. Then it jumped across the Pacific Ocean to Eastern uh, Asia. And while it's still growing there, and especially Eastern China, the the church in China is amazing. It's amazing. I get to go there at least once a year and meet with house church leaders and so on. And what God is doing in China, you, you really shouldn't even be able to write about because they're in danger under persecution a lot. But the miracles that Jesus is doing to call Chinese people to follow him and to call them to become missionaries. And that's the the group I'm involved with, with, is training young people from the house churches, the house churches, the underground, the persecuted, the illegal church, if we want to say it that way. I wouldn't say it that way in other other contexts. But to call the young people from those churches to give their lives to be missionaries to the Middle East. And so I was in Jordan just after being in Israel, training some of these young people on spiritual warfare because they face it, of course, over there. So the Back to Jerusalem movement is something we all can be a part of, and that is to see the gospel then go across from eastern China to western China, throughout all southeast Asia, throughout um, south-central Asia, all the Stans whose names we didn't know before the breakup of the Soviet Union, Turkmenistan and Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan and so on. All those... Unreached people groups, 98% of the unreached people are in what's called the 1040 window, which cuts across northern Africa today all the way to Asia, through India and much of China. So we can be involved in that great mission of taking the, the gospel all full circle back to Jerusalem. And so I encourage you to excel still more. Encourage your pastor. He's got a missionary heart. I saw it there in Uganda He's going to Rwanda, and he's taking the gospel to these people, and it's wonderful. Encourage him. What what a great thing. I think you had 11 with you in in Uganda from the church here. That was fantastic. And, and, you know, they served. They served. They served the young people. There were medical people there. Continue. Excel still more in that regard. A third area that he talks about excelling still more is in caring pastorally for one another pastorally you say well i'm not a pastor well uh you can be you don't have to be ordained you don't have to go to bible college to serve pastorally is to be a shepherd i doubt very much if the shepherds in jerusalem in in israel you know had um seminary training or bible college training you can be a shepherd what is he talking about here well caring for other people Caring for other people. Your pastor and pastors, no matter how many you have, they can't possibly care pastorally for this number of people. I mean, it's just too demanding. Um, God's calling, especially for Pastor LaLoya, is to spend his time in prayer and and studying the scriptures and preparing to feed you. Uh, I remember some of you um, possibly have read some of the writings of A.W. Tozer. Yes, maybe. Some have. So he was from my denomination. Uh, I don't think he was the most popular guy in it either. But he would say, you know, if you feed your people, your sheep on, on Sundays, you don't have to spend quite as much time maybe counseling them. And so uh, that's true. As you come here and receive the word of God, you are growing, you are maturing, and you are watching God deal with your problems. He is, you know, the, the third person person. Of the Godhead is the Holy Spirit. The Greek word that Jesus used when he talked about the coming comforter is parakletos. He's the Paraclete. Paraclete means a counselor, an, an encourager, an exhorter. That's the Holy Spirit. And as we are connected to him, he will be our counselor. But people may need somebody else. So here's what I'm encouraging you to do in excelling still more in your caring and your pastoral ministry to others. Learn your spiritual gift. And I'm saying it's singular because there's no place in the Bible that it states or even uh, implies that one believer has more than one spiritual gift. Learn your spiritual gift. It's how you are wired. It's how you're made up. It's your motivation it's not an activity, an ability, an achievement. There are many manifestations of the Spirit. We saw a lot of them in the worship earlier on. Many manifestations that Paul talks about in First Corinthians 12. But when he teaches about the charismata, there's only one list, and it's in 1 It's in Romans chapter 12, and there are seven of them there. And I'm not going to go through them right now. We have a seminar called Finding Your Charisma, and when we do that, we did one a few weeks ago up at Pastor Frankie's church in Bedminster, people will find their charisma. How is it that I have been especially wired by God to serve the body of Christ? So find, find and, and learn how to use and bless others through your spiritual gift. And how should we love others? How, how should we serve others? Well, lots of things. Words of encouragement and hospitality and serving and visiting and praying and so on. But the specific issue that Paul was talking to the Thessalonians about in terms of um, caring pastorally for one another was to help people to understand about the second coming of our Lord. The church at Thessalonica was confused about that. Some said, what's going to happen? What happens to people who have already died? They're going to miss it when Jesus comes back. And he said, don't worry, don't worry. You know, Understand this, that they will precede us in going... When the Lord comes, they will precede us. They will be raptured ahead of us. And that's what he talks about. And so he uses the word, the coming of our Lord is is the parousia, the parousia, the sudden appearance. And it's described there as a sudden appearance. He says the shout, the voice of an archangel, the trumpet of God, it will come. And he says, so comfort one another with these words. But you know what? The only ones who can be comforted with these words are those who are in Christ. They're in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you will not be comforted by these words because that voice, that trump, that will be a scary time. When the day of the Lord comes, it will be a scary time for those who are not in Christ. And that's true. That's what Scripture says. So comfort one another. So. When we think about the return, we really need to ask ourselves, am I really looking forward to that? Oh, I got this to do. I got that to do. I'm, I'm young. I got my whole life to lead. You know what? I will guarantee you when he comes and you go with him, there will never be one second of disappointment. Not one second of disappointment. You will be, we will be flat out thrilled and, and delighted in his presence. So don't worry about that. Let's, you know, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus. A fourth way that the Apostle Paul talks to the Thessalonians about excelling is excel, excel still more in your, spiritual, in your spiritual warfare. Now we move on to chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, talks about that. So this continues sort of the eschatological section that Paul is talking about, the coming of the Lord. But he refers to two Pieces of spiritual armor that later on he writes to the Ephesians about, and he gives them six pieces of spiritual armor. I I think they needed it more because Ephesus was such a a, a, demonized city. It was amazing. But to the Thessalonians, he talks about the breastplate and the helmet, two of the pieces of uh, spiritual armor that uh, Paul writes about later on. So, but he's implying that there is warfare, and the warfare will increase as the day of the Lord draws nigh. The warfare will increase. It just will. Satan knows his day is numbered. He knows he's already been defeated, but he's trying to take with him everybody he can. And our job is to not let him do that. Our job is to, first of all, be strong in the Lord, be warriors, and to bring other people in out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. And so excel still more in your... Spiritual warfare. Uh, If you're a child of God, you're going to be attacked. I received a text from one of the trustees of our college uh, last week. And she said, Pastor, some of them call me Pastor. I like that. Some call me Doc. I kind of like that too. Uh, I like the name Pastor better. But he said, Pastor, um, please pray for me. There's a lawsuit that's threatened against me by somebody I thought was my friend and colleague. And she said, I need to respond to this the right way. And so my response back to her was to say to her, you know, um, consider yourself privileged because you're dangerous. If you're not dangerous, you'll not be attacked. If everything's going really well for you all the time and you're not attacked, it means you're not dangerous to the enemy. You want to be dangerous. You are a rebel. You are a warrior. Okay? Prayer is the ultimate act of rebellion. And we need to engage in it. I love to see the, the emphasis you have here on prayer. Because prayer is the ultimate act of rebellion against Satan. And you know what else is? Worship. When we gather together and we worship like this, I'll tell you, Satan wasn't anywhere near. He doesn't want any part of an, a, an, a people who absolutely go, hor- go vertical in their life worship. So, yes, continue to expect you're going to be attacked. So this warfare that we're involved in, is not an altercation. It's, it's not a conflict or a skirmish. It is open, life and death, highest stakes warfare. We need to understand that. We need to understand that. It's highest stakes warfare. Think of it being around the world. So many forms of voodooism in the Caribbean especially, in other places, demonism, strongly all over the world, but places like uh, Brazil and some places in Africa, which we we saw some of that when we were in Uganda, and I've seen it in other places in, in Africa, but it's in America. The only thing is Satan disguises himself, and he's fooled us into thinking that he's some kind of cartoonish figure, you know, with a red suit and a tail and cloven feet and horns and all that, and so we think of him as fiction. And he's just happy with that because you're not going to fight against a cartoon. But he's not that. We see family disintegration in many places, and especially I think of Latin America. My daughter just returned in the summer after 15 uh, years of serving God in Argentina and Ecuador and being down there pretty often, as Betsy and I were we saw so much, so much family disintegration. We think of secular humanism in Europe. You know, I'm involved in another board that's called Atlantic Bridge, and it's trying to reach the youth cultures of Central, Eastern, and Western Europe. And my friend John Ostike, who's the founder of this ministry of Atlantic Bridge, says, you know, our job is to, re- is to introduce the present generation to the faith of their grandparents. Because, as you know, particularly under communism, the reigning ideology was was atheism, and it was taught in the schools. So, secularism, humanism is throughout uh, uh, Europe today, and it certainly found its way to the United States. Atheistic communism is another area, you know, and even though we mentioned what God is doing in China, still... Atheistic communism is the primary worldview that is propounded there, and it's getting worse and worse. And it's taught in the schools all the time, and so that's another area of warfare. And and if I may say it, I believe in that Islam in, in the Middle East, in Indonesia, and spreading itself around the world, it is not the faith of Jesus Christ. And there's no way that you can imagine having having uh, Jesus Christ and Muhammad here sitting on the platform and finding them agreeing on everything. It just wouldn't happen. And though I I teach and I love some of the uh, adult students I've had who are committed to the Islamic faith, um, the truth of the matter is they're wrong. You know, they're wrong about some of the things that that they've been taught to believe. And then there's, there are other worldviews: Hinduism in India, and godless materialism above everything here in the Americas, godless materialism. You know, if you ask what is the world view of the United States today, it's therapeutic, moralistic humanism. That's what it is. We cannot call ourselves, and I'm not sure we ever were, a Christian nation. Nations can't receive Christ as their Savior. People can, but We are today far from that, as you know. It's not really popular to be a Christian anymore, certainly here in the Northeast. So what happens when we forget that we're at war? And so easily we do, because we have fairly comfortable life here in in the United States. But what happens when we forget that we're at war? First, the enemy prevails, and he claims more victims, even family members of Christians. When we forget that we're at war, the enemy prevails, and he claims more victims, Secondly, we forget how to use our weapons. We put them down. We think we're at peace, and so we don't use our weapons. They become rusty, and we don't we don't remember how to wage spiritual warfare. We let down our defenses. We think that Satan isn't trying to destroy us. He is. He's trying to destroy your mind. That's where it begins. Satan wants to corrupt your mind, and he's doing it through all kinds of media. I'm not against modern media, but it can be a corrupting influence if you use it in the wrong way. And Satan loves to have your mind corrupted so that you will uh, let down your defenses. And then another way in which that happens when we forget that we're at warfare is that our competitive nature, which we all have some level of competitive nature, it turns inward and we begin to fight each other rather than fight the enemy. So I'm encouraging you, excel still more. Excel still more in spiritual warfare. Be part of this warfare that's going on that will continue until Christ comes and claims the victory he's already won. Fifth, excel still more in responding properly to your leaders. This is found in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 5. It says, appreciate or know them. And the basis of this appreciation is that you know your spiritual leaders, you know that they're not God. You know that they're not God. They're not omniscient. They're not omnipotent. They're not omnipresent. They're servants of God that he has entrusted with the stewardship of ministry that includes you. But know them. Understand what their gift is and, and how God is using them. Know, their, know your leaders, not just who they are, but what their calling means. Pastoring, as I said yesterday to the workers, pastoring is the most difficult job in the world. It really is. I'm sure of that. And then pastoring is, uh, is a work where it says they have charge over you. They have a spiritual responsibility. They didn't take that upon themselves. God gave them that responsibility. So they have charge over you, a spiritual authority and spiritual responsibility. And if you are here as a member or even an attender, you're putting yourself under that spiritual authority. And it's a nice, safe place to be because you can trust your spiritual leaders. Trust them that way. And it says they work hard. It literally means they grow weary. They grow tired. They grow exhausted from their burdens and from grief that they share with, with people. And here I'm going to say something that I've not been a very good example of, but I need to be, and I'm improving, I'm growing, I'm excelling still more in something that's difficult for me, and that's taking Sabbath. And I encourage you to encourage your leaders and allow them to take Sabbath. If you know your pastor's day off is Monday or Friday or whatever, save your problems until the next day, all right? Don't bother them. Don't bother them. Give them a day of relief, a day off. And it says, esteem them, esteem them highly in love. And that's and the basis of that esteem is not simply because they're a nice guy or a nice woman, but because of their work. Esteem them because of their work. Respect them because of their position. Love them in the agape way. Yeah. And then the last point I'd like to bring to your attention is uh, another way to excel still more in day-by-day Christian maturing. Christian maturing. So there are eight injunctions that are here in the next eight verses from 14 onward he says and and this is this isn't to the pastor this is to us this is to the people that are members of the body of Christ of Agape House of Worship it says admonish the unruly <laughs> you know if somebody has a problem with another person don't go to the pastor about the problem go to the person that's exactly what Matthew 18 says. You go to the person, and if you can't find satisfaction there, take a witness with you. Not somebody to witness against that person, but to witness the conversation between the two of you. Take a witness with you. If it still doesn't work, then bring it to the church and so on. But take your responsibility. Admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak, and be patient with all. That's the first point in chapter in, in Verse 14. Admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all. Then the second point, verse 15, is don't take revenge. If somebody does something that offends you, your response is not to take revenge. It's not an eye and eye for tooth for a tooth, as Jesus said. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Have you ever tried that? You're offended at somebody, somebody's mistreated you, What is your first response? It's supposed to be pray. Pray for them, not against them. Pray for them. All right? No revenge. Verse 16, rejoice always. Rejoice always. What that means is, you know, maybe you you don't feel like rejoicing. Maybe things aren't all that positive in your life. But you can rejoice when you think about the most important things in life are that you know Jesus Christ, that you are a citizen of heaven here and now. If you can't rejoice in that, when you're discouraged and even moving toward depression, get out of it by rejoicing in the Lord. It says always. Then it says pray without ceasing. Verse 17. That means be in an attitude. Be constantly aware. Let let God be your default screen. Okay? We all have software, and we're busy on our different software at times. But when you stop with that software, it goes to a screen, a screensaver. Let your screensaver be God. So that when you're not involved with other things, you're right away, you're thinking about God. Now, I want to do that. I need to excel still more in that area because I usually move on to the other softwares pretty quickly. But excel still more in praying without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. Not for everything, in everything. In everything, give thanks. And that means the difficult times, too, because we are told by James that, you know, when we are in times of testing that understand that it's for our growth and that God is allowing that to happen because he loves us and he wants us to grow do not quench the spirit make sure that the holy spirit has freedom in your life and in the body's life to, to bring about what the holy spirit's primary job is to do and that's to glorify Jesus Christ glorify Je- when we quench the spirit we're basically saying Jesus I don't want you to be glorified do not quench the spirit and do not, it says, despise prophecies. Prophecy doesn't mean uh, predicting the future. The primary meaning of that word is to proclaim, to proclaim the truth. Don't despise the proclamation of the truth. Welcome the proclamation of the truth. And then it says examine everything carefully. Examine everything carefully. Be discerning. We're not to judge Jesus said in Matthew 7, 1, judge not, that's the Greek word, krino, do not judge. That means you do not have the authority or the right to condemn somebody. That's what that kind of judgment is. But anakrino and diakrino, two derivatives from that, are, are both encouraged, and that's to be discerning, to analyze, to be objective, to come to opinions. Because a little bit later in chapter 7 of Matthew, he says to the disciples, he said, now I want you to be discerning. ...about false prophets. Who are the false prophets? So we should have discernment... ...but we should not despise prophecies... ...we should not quench the Spirit... ...we should examine everything carefully. So, to conclude... ...you are moving into your 14th year as a church. You are still an adolescent church. Hallelujah! Okay? You're an adolescent church... ...meaning you have a lot of energy... (laughs) ...we've experienced... You're growing. Your body is changing like an adolescent. You're discovering your giftings in the church. And you have more maturing to do as the body of Christ here. So I thank God. I thank God that you have a spiritually mature pastoral couple and other pastors to guide you. And I'm encouraging you to look to them and to your loving Heavenly Father to help you excel still more. You committed to that? Okay, let's say it together. Excel still more. Excel still more. Excel still more. And you will do that because this is a year of outpouring. God bless you all. The Lord be with you.